Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Alternative relationship spaces like polyamory groups or kink organizations sometimes struggle to see when racism is going on in their spaces because it tends to be more subtle than traditional violence. Jazz Goldman is a mixed black Jewish American and I'm a mixed British Indo-Canadian. We bring our mixed experiences of our heritage to this conversation about racism. I try to document how racism looks to us in these communities and what recommendations Jazz has for organizers looking to make changes to make these spaces more anti-racist. There is, in my opinion, a great importance of making a concerted effort to change culture among several organizations or events at the same time. That is to say, rather than one organization being targeted as leading the charge, posters, policies, hands-on education, that's the way to go, in my opinion, and it can be done over all of the organizations at the same time. So it just seems like, oh, I guess it's 2019. It's worth hiring an anti-oppression consultant if you can, and it's always more effective when it's more than one organizer. That's pretty much my takeaways that I will offer you in advance of this discussion of said takeaways and other strategies. Good luck taking an anti-racism stance in your community, friends. I'll just keep fingering this and see if I get it. (laughs) You're welcome to do that. (laughs) I have gifted Jazz Goldman my guest today whole bunch of frustration in <laughs> this bronze cast puzzle which is two pieces and one step but it's a lot easier than it sounds and jazz is currently fiddling with this bronze puzzle in trying com- to do it quietly now complete frustration which is fair but hopefully it won't distract you from our conversation topic today which is making white spaces safer for racial minorities this is sort of the Second take, we did a a first episode and found we mostly talked about definitions of race, definitions of whiteness, who gets to be white, and we've decided we don't want to center quite so much of that in this episode and instead want to talk about how those concepts apply to alternative communities like the non-monogamy communities and BDSM communities. How are you doing, Jazz? I'm excited to... to, to do a different take on this combo actually yeah it was really i liked what we talked about but it was it was a little different from what a we kind of set out a little academic do. and like didn't quite tackle the issues that i think we originally both wanted to tackle yeah so when you attend mainstream parties um you know vancouver seattle portland la new york and i'm not saying you've necessarily attended them in all of those cities but like, you can just swap out san fran for la and that would all be accurate okay yeah um cool how do you find the racial balance by city versus by party? Mm, mm-hmm. I think the racial balance is kind of always better in New York by virtue of numbers and sheer mm-hmm. diversity of that city compared to others. Like, mm. like Seattle, Portland are not going to, like, they're just out you know, for that question. And then... I like how you're like, I won't even consider Seattle or Portland because I they're won't. so white. Yes, that is Got what you. I'm saying. <laughs> do you do you mean to say the city's demographic is very white as well? Or do you mean like the parties are so much whiter than the city? Both. Okay. I w- yeah, it, like answering the actual question, which was like, what's the party makeup? And like, yeah, compared to New York... And I guess San Francisco, I haven't really partied a whole lot in San Francisco, and it's been a long time, but sure. I have technically. And then here in Vancouver, yeah, it just... I, I went to a foundations party in San Francisco, and it seemed exceptionally white to me. Yeah. Which might just be the makeup of San Francisco. Right. 
Right. Um, Because it wasn't like I was going to a party in, say, Oakland. I was going in San Francisco, so, like... Right. Which is why I brought up New York, because... I'm a little more eclectic, a little more diverse, I think. Yeah. At least in terms of, like... And please correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, specific areas tend to be very diverse still. Like, if you go to an event, it's so densely populated that there'll be enough people of different backgrounds that you just have, like, more diverse makeup, I think. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean I, uh, the problem too is that I just I about half to like a little more of half of my experience in the party world was a person was me not having um as deep a lens on these things as I wish that I had. Mm. So I'm trying to sort of r- retrospectively evaluate memory which is evaluating memory is always a a fucked up endeavor that is basically impossible because of how the brain works but legit um i think even with all of that to kind of skew my data new york just it's just always more diverse Mm -hmm. it's part of why i didn't recognize where i was in time and space like i had to leave the whole city in order to see how diverse it actually was and to see just what I had been taking for granted, you know? Um, So even the most white predominant kind of vibe in New York is still more cosmopolitan and welcoming in to an extent compared to a place like Seattle Mm -hmm. or Portland. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know Vancouver well enough to well, make honestly, that statement. I, I think it is not. As a person who lives in Vancouver, I, I do see more diversity um, in specifically like the one kink party that I've been doing organizing around. Yeah. So in terms of like the organizing that I've been doing, I have found more diversity now since I started doing that. And still it is maybe 10% of the population of that party. Right. Um, versus versus the like 2 to 3% attended to be before. So it's improved markedly and... The numbers are still small. Very small, considering it's a 50% POC city. Right. But it also, I think, depends on where you're hosting the party. In the same way that I gave San Francisco a pass for not being Oakland, I should also be like, well, Vancouver isn't Surrey and Vancouver isn't Richmond and Vancouver isn't Burnaby and Vancouver isn't North Van and just kind of like think about it in that respect. We are... But but at the same time, this party is being hosted in Burnaby. Mm-hmm. So... But of course, you don't know what any of these labels mean. <laughs> um, but but TLDR, like people like myself, are very much trying to change the makeup in the city, and I don't think we're anywhere near there yet. Yes, I think there's a lot to do. Yes, and I think that's a lot of because it's still seen as a diversity and inclusion issue rather mm, than an a racist, yeah, unfair, biased kind of setup. Yeah, and it is exactly that. It's, it's not about, like, what can we be so magnanimous and generous to gift all of these people of color. It is, no, the space is racist as fuck, and mm-hmm. we need to address that. Yeah. And, like, yeah. that hasn't that hasn't happened. I mean, it hasn't quite happened like that yet. Yeah. Um, which kind of brings us to the next question of, like, can we talk about what the definition of microaggression is? <laughs> because I know some people really don't like that term. Yeah. Um, they don't really know what it means. They don't, they think, they think it just means anything that offends someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, could you, do you have an idea? Or yeah, I've got you a pretty share? good working definition. Awesome. So, I mean, microaggressions are a subset of racist behavior. I think it's really important to frame it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't always, mm-hmm. but they should. And right. I'm shitting on them. It's a subset of racist behavior. I agree. That is... Um, it's often characterized as more benign in nature, sure. um, less v- explicit, less violent, less overt. Like, you know, when we think of capital R racist acts of being beaten or having a slur yelled at you or, you know, having your property messed up in some way. And specifically a slur with history. It can't just be any slur. Yes. Um, I didn't want to list the slurs, so I was being general, but yeah. That's fair. Um, but a microaggression is more like a tiny annoyance, but, uh, but the kind that comes up so much that it has almost a similar cumulative effect. Um, there's actually a really great video that 
um, I don't know the name of, but it's a cartoon and it uses the analogy of bee stings. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really great because a bee sting hurts a lot when it first happens. And then there's like a whole process of it healing. But um, if you keep getting stung by a bee, you don't get that feeling of the healing at the end, the getting over, the moving past. And that's really, to me, the, the most important function of microaggressions is why they are aggressive is because they keep happening. Because mm -hmm. otherwise it would just be a micro act. It would just be an incident. Right. But it's not. There's this feeling of being attacked. Like, yeah, and and not on even on a tiny microscopic not even, level. But but it's it's so much more than that because it's the sum of the actions, like you were saying. It's not just being attacked by this one individual person. It is a community having a culture of exclusivity and racism towards you as an individual, even if that exclusivity and racism is very small. Right. Because it's the cumulative effect of the whole culture of minor racism, if we want to use that term. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So so microaggressions are just small racist acts that accumulate over time. Yeah. And I'm, I'm fortunate that, Hmm. I was going to say, I'm fortunate that I'm white passing enough that I don't have to deal with it as much as some of my friends do. But you, you but definitely stored up a bunch it. in your earlier years. <laughs> definitely. That's definitely true. And that counts. Yeah. Like that's kind of an interesting facet of microaggression. Like you can go through a space or a period of time where it's just an onslaught and then be somewhere else and not one, one comes up and you're so you notice it because you're like wow i used to deal with people saying that shit to me all the time right right um, yeah like i used to have people constantly grabbing at my head to touch my hair my entire life to the point where i would actually just turn my head down and let people do it like wow. i would see their hands waving and coming towards my face and i would go uh-huh, uh-huh, and just sort of, like, turn my head down because it was, I felt like that was easier at the time. Wow. Yeah, submission to other people over your own bodily autonomy because that's easier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Bodily autonomy, what is that? What is that when you're cute and exotic <sighs> and small-statured? That's a perfect example of of microaggression is fetishization if enough people fetishize you for highly racialized traits not because they necessarily like you at all mm -hmm. but because these traits are specifically seen as and then like i don't think people understand how upsetting it is like people think about it like wouldn't it be great to have this huge advantage over everyone else quote unquote of mm -hmm. being desired and mm -hmm. it just doesn't function like that in practice it doesn't function like that no it's it is the practice of being called you know, barbaric or savage, and in some way having that be seen as something fun to play with, having that seen as something that people find attractive because it's wrong or attractive because it's dehumanizing to sleep with you, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Like, these aren't fun, playful, soft things. These are rooted in hatred and violence and bigotry. And oppression. Definitely. And, like power. Like there's, Definitely. there's a, it's just a power trip. A microaggression could also be seen as a power trip. Interesting. I think a lot of the time microaggressions may be intentional and yeah. some of the time they're unintentional. And yes. people love to focus on the unintentional piece mm -hmm. of like, oh, but if it's unintentional, it doesn't mean anything. And it's like. Impact. I don't know if, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Is the distinction between impact and intention and how it doesn't really matter what your intention is to the person being harmed. Mm -hmm. It only really matters in terms of whether or not you're worth the time to be rehabilitated to being a less harmful person. Yeah. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter if you hyper focus on a feature about certain brown people and that's a sure. thing that you like. Sure. Like that's and still you're allowed to have weird fetishy things. You're allowed to think highly racist thoughts. No one's going to judge you for what happens in your brain. When those things start coming out of your mouth and they start impacting other people, that's when this shit starts getting important, in my opinion. Yeah, you're nice. I think racism should be a thought crime. <laughs> I mean, I don't think... I don't think we should have thought crimes, so that was a joke. Right. But... <laughs> well, so what, what happened for me when you said that was that the only racism-related thought crime I can see is, like, the thought crime around... Like, the, what came up for me was, like, Ten Commandments... And why it was more important to make wanting to own the slaves that your neighbor owned a thought crime, but not the slavery. 
Mm. Oh, I see. That's and I was like, that is a very racist god. <laughs> Although I suppose just about anyone could be a slave. Just about. At that time. At yeah. that time period. However, it was still I'm sure there was a... probably largely black and brown people. I think it probably was. Yeah. Yeah, that has typically been the trend. But regardless... It wasn't slavery that was outlawed as a thought crime. You shouldn't, you shouldn't, it shouldn't be a crime that you so much as think about enslaving someone. What was a crime was if you wanted to own the slaves that someone else already owned. Over, and it's the same thing with like stealing being on that list, but not rape. I'm like, wow, this is a highly questionable code of morals. Yeah. Well, that's because it's hacked. It's 2,000 years old. It just needs to be updated. But it's also like the things it was pulling from in other religious sure. traditions. Like it, it was kind of a hodgepodge. You totally. I can. Yeah. So like. I actually don't really know the origins in Judaic traditions like past um, the original pulling of Christians from Judaism. I was thinking of Hammurabi's code. Oh, honestly, Because that predates the commandments correct I would, I would need to google oh, that oh dear i hope that's true we'll find out because <laughs> it's important to fact check even it your is. own memories of history but um, yeah that's what i was thinking about was like the can, ten commandments as a body yeah. of laws though they're religious we could call them a body of laws um were borrowed from other oh yeah it's totally totally predates it's like 1750 bc cool Good. It's a well-preserved Babylonian code of law. Yeah. And there are other codes from other cultures that influenced the Old Testament and the New Testament. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. It is one of the oldest deciphered writings of significant length in the world alongside things like the Vedas. Mm. It's like 1700 years BC is like, or BCE. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. So, yeah. Fact-checking done. <laughs> um, right. So, in terms of examples of microaggressions, we've already talked about, like, please don't fetishize people non-consensually. Because, again, like, if you want to do race play, um, that is a place you visit with consent, not a place, hopefully, that you live in. What was it you said last episode? You're like, otherwise, that's just a racist way to look at the world. Because you're looking at it through a lens of all these people of this race are blank, regardless of whether that's attractive or otherwise. People have this thing oh, where they yeah. feel like they can defend what they're attracted to as not being bigoted. Mm -hmm. But like, what impacts what you're attracted to? Like, yeah, as, this as idea a... that, that personal choice is influenced by all these things, except when we're talking about sexual relationships. Right, it's complete Come bullshit. On. So what's funny about it for me is like, I get the evolutionary argument that fitness has a lot to do with it, but what is a key component of fitness? Social status. If one mm -hmm. thing is, if one thing is going to impact your perception of another person as being highly likely to survive, it's going to be social status. So the question then becomes, who do you view as very high in social status or very low in social status? And I honestly believe those things are going to impact what you're attracted to potentially, potentially more than anything else. Although I absolutely want to hold space for folks being like, I'm just really into these body parts, regardless of whether they're feet or tits or ass or cunts or cocks or whatever. Being super into the way a certain body type look, body part looks, sure. I feel like is separate from who we're attracted to. Like they're yeah. connected, yeah. but yeah, I feel like as humans, we're allowed to be very specific and picky and random about, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I like tits that do this. I sure. like cocks that do this. I like butts that do this. Sure. But if, if that kind of thinking extends all the way through to a whole person that we're attracted to, then it kind of is going in the territory that you're it's describing. It's also not being attracted to a whole person at that point. You're objectifying right. a person down to one specific trait, which is also not necessarily consensual objectification play. Yeah. And and to, to what you just said about, like, how, what was it you said? How these things influence... Social yeah, how, status. Yeah, social status and how that does impact your ability to discern who you like. Right. Um, as a recovered, you know, like, post-racial person, you know, mm. brought up in the 90s and brought up in, in predominantly white environments, in school, 
um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not in school, like extracurriculars, all, all the things were just lots and lots of white people. So not shockingly, my first, you know, long-term quote unquote, significant relationships were with white people. And now my, my, my makeup of attraction is just very different than it ever has been. And I think it's because I have done a lot of work to not let the, the, the cultural norms dictate who I spend time with. I used to literally like my, my, um, I'm not going to say who this was, um, but a person in myself someone who's very significant to me. Um, we used to just agree that we thought, you know, white women were really attractive. And that was just a thing we said that we didn't think was highly racist. And it's definitely a highly racist thing to say. Mm-hmm. And I've white done a lot of work on it. Sorry? I was just repeating it. I was saying white women are attractive. Like, I'm yeah. like, I mean, as yeah. much as any other women can be attractive, or for that matter, any other humans. Like, right. So much of that is just, I mean, you can unpack how much bigotry you're so frustrated with that bronze toy. Hi. Um, you can unpack like how much bigotry is associated with a, a phrase like that yeah. of just saying, oh, I've just typically found white features attractive. And it's yeah. like, so why? You're, right. Let's think about that. That's maybe. the question. And also it is literally white supremacy. You're literally saying white features are supreme over other features. Yeah. You are literally making a white supremacist statement in saying white blank is just more attractive to you. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. But you're also saying in your internal landscape, mm-hmm. there's a lot of white supremacy alive in you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that maybe if you didn't hold some views elsewhere, that might not impact your attraction quite as much. And maybe this is just because I'm an older person now and I've spent... <laughs> What? I spent like 20 years being attracted to different kinds of people. And over those two decades from being 12 to 32, I'm about to be 33. Um, Jesus's year. Is it? That's is that the, when he you... made it till 33 and then that was it. Oh, so like I almost consider 27 more significant because of like all the various musical suicides that happened. It is. That... Maybe to Western culture. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Maybe. I am definitely thinking of like... I was tangenting on your thing, I was thinking of people that I'm like, I would hold in, not higher esteem than Jesus exactly, but like (laughs) people that have had a more significant... That's not true because Jesus has had a very significant impact on my life. Maybe not personally, Well, if we're talking about how much race has whiteness is in, (laughs) Jesus is very deeply in there. Definitely. I mean, like how many... We wouldn't have these countries without Jesus. Like Canada as it exists. And, uh, yeah, as it exists, certainly. I, I mean, at a certain point, eventually there would have been more humans from some yes. population area oh, yes. and there would have been globalization. But like, would it have looked like this? Would we be this far behind? Because if you think about how advanced non-Christian countries were during like the really iron grip of Christianity, look at what Arabs were doing while Europe was in the Dark Ages. They don't call it that because of Christ's enlightenment. Actually, they do, but not in the way most people mean it. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so it's frustrating when I think about that. I'm like, we lost so much because you just couldn't give up that maybe Earth wasn't the center of the universe. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Anyways. What you were saying about the, like, having that preference and what you learned about yourself in right. reflecting more deeply on that. Right. I had a version of that as well. Um, Please And I share. still feel some conflict about it because my attractions haven't changed in those areas. My critique of them has. Interesting. So I spent... A long time completely denying to everyone I knew that I really liked blondes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I felt very embarrassed that I thought Brad Pitt was a cute person, Leonardo DiCaprio, like those very Archetypally mainstream dudes. Well, see, that that's where I give myself some slack because I've been the gayest since forever, since before <laughs> I even knew it. So, sure. yeah, like, yeah, all the jokes about Leo and twinks and lesbians and things and whatever, but. Sure. Um, I also really, really like redheads a lot, a lot. And in my experience, they have predominantly been white redheads. Mm -hmm. I did actually know a redheaded black kid when I was very young and she was my friend. Um, And that was the first black person I ever met with red hair and is still one of the few. I know another one now. I'm not going to call them out because they didn't necessarily agree to that. Sure. um, And that feels weird to do, too. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I just, those are things that are very highly attractive to me, Mm -hmm. not in some kind of random blanket way where it's like, I will just go to bed with anyone with red hair or blonde hair. It's not like that, but I've noticed Mm -hmm. and 
I think the reason why I hid that, especially the blonde stuff, was because I just, I knew what people would think. And mm-hmm. I didn't want to be associated with that, mm-hmm. which is always a clue that you maybe need to examine something about race. If you are <laughs> pushing yourself away from it, if you're embarrassed by the association. There might be a reason for that. At least look into it. If not, you have some shit to, to work out. Totally. And I love that you tackled this idea that like POCs can hold a lot of internalized racism against themselves and against other POCs. Like in this case, again, we're talking about the superiority of predominantly white traits, even though that's not exactly what we're talking about. It's it's very similar to the messaging I received around, you know, blondes had more fun and like all of these various stereotypes, which are in their own way quite bigoted. Yeah. Um, positive stereotypes can be just as damaging as negative ones. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? I can't remember. Um, and yes, it's... Again, not the same thing as looking at, oh, but isn't this person just fetishizing white traits in the same way that all of society tends to fetishize white traits? Um, and that, that I would say no. I mean, yes, there, are, there is fetishism of white traits in and amongst that thread of white supremacy that sort of pierces through a lot of Canadian and American society. Um, and also, there is a power dynamic that's not being discussed there about like how does this negatively impact white folks yeah. versus how does it negatively impact, say, non-white folks when they're fetishized. Yeah. And that's a whole conversation. Um, there's a reason that so many femmes try for blonde hair with dyes and bleaches mm-hmm. and why so many mask people will dye their blonde hair a different color. And it's because we typically associate blondness with feminists. And dumbness. Right. Amongst other negative traits. Right. And that's acceptable to be if you're a femme. You can be a yes. dumb femme and be attractive. But yes. being a dumb a dumb guy, not typically seen as attractive. Elvis was a blonde, for example. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. Yes. Very blonde. And wow. early, early on, went, went someone dark. was like, you, you should just dye your hair or something. And you fucking did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Imagine... What a we would have thought Elvis. of Elvis as a performer had he not had that dark, swarthy kind of thing going right, right. on. Everyone would have been like, he's just a dumb fuck boy. Because he had blue eyes. Like, he was actually like a Brad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can use the word Aryan if you want to use the word Aryan. I prefer to talk about blondes in terms of Brad Pitt for some reason. It just feels That's nice That's kind of adorable. <laughs> That's kind of I'm not even that into Brad Pitt compared to other blondes that I've had crushes on. I just like, I don't know. I should start talking about Chris Evans, right? America's ass. Oh, right, right, right. He's considered a blonde. Captain America. Yeah? I honestly have no idea. This conversation has taken a weird turn that I wasn't expecting. No, no, you can fetishize blondes all you want. Uh. Um, But like that is is also like a bit of a mind fuck for me, which is fine. Like there's no shame in it. It just is a thing. Mm. Right. I'm. I mean, as a non-monogamous person, it's not going to offend me in the least if you're like, I highly fetishize all these people that don't look like you. <laughs> right. Like that doesn't bother me because yeah. I also know, independent of that, you're pretty attracted to me, and that's great. Not pretty, like definitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also don't spend a lot of time talking about the things that are attracted to me about brownness because right. I feel uncomfortable with it. Tell me more. This I can get into. Yeah, yeah, I mean... And and yes, it is also potentially verging on fetishization. It, and by my emphatic comment, I hope you see that there's consent in this exchange. Yes, yes. I mean, and it's important, too, to say that, like, as a person of color who grew up with a white parent, who is a very dominant person um, in the way that they move through the world, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that impacted me, too, like... And that's part of why I'm uncomfortable talking about what I like about brownness as readily because I don't want the same misconceptions that could come from talking about whiteness to be, you know what I mean? Like I just, yeah, like I don't people... want to sound racist against brown people or, sure. or like overly fetishistic. Sure. Even though I've spent my whole life noting things that I like very much about different peoples. Totally. And I can totally like agree to that. There yeah. is a lot of things I'm attracted about in a lot of humans. However, there was definitely a reigning supremacy of whiteness yeah. throughout my early life that yeah. I've done a lot of work on since then. Yeah. And I think I've come to a place where 
part of arousal for me is safety and part of safety is shared experience. And I think that's why I'm so attracted to other mixed race people Mm -hmm. is because a lot of the time I don't need to explain that I don't want them to fetishize me in really uncomfortable ways. Um, And like I have had partners before that have been fairly fetishizing of me. Um, And that was their idea of what would be helpful to counteract some of the really negative racism that I had been experiencing. And it was like, racism in a positive direction isn't the same isn't isn't the panacea for racism in a negative direction like saying that because i'm asian i'm good at math for example is not going to make me feel like there's less racism going on right right which is the same saying that you know i'm good at dancing because i'm black sure exactly whereas like i'm good at math because i put in the fucking time and i practiced and i worked really hard at it which is also a thing i did with dance <laughs> i went Shock- to school shocking shocking <laughs> did like a whole degree that well no i didn't get a degree in dance but i did get... oh i mostly meant me with doing calculus yes you got a degree in not, that not in calculus but i did a lot of calculus for my degree sure sure yeah yeah i mean uh, like so there are things that i grew up hearing in my household around brownness and attractiveness that I I knew was unique to my house and therefore didn't feel as comfortable expressing. Mm. So like, I'm going to throw one out there and, you know, God willing, I don't offend someone, but I can't really control that. I really do like um, mask people with dark hair um, and a lot of body hair. I like body hair, period, on people mm-hmm. um, when they are brown. <laughs> It registers as hot to me in a way that I know is not true for a lot of cookie-cutter white folks. They would see the, an abundance of hair as unattractive in such an extreme way that it takes... In the current, in the current meta. Because, sure. like, in the 70s, it would have been all the rage. Like, a lot of Depending. white folks would have right, agreed yeah, with Right, yeah, Burt you, Reynolds and... With the exception that they couldn't be non-white. Right, because in the seventies, especially, it would have been like, yeah, Burt Reynolds was attractive, but that was as dark as your skin could get. You mm-hmm. couldn't be swarthier than Burt Reynolds and yeah. still be attractive. Not really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There Not, were all kinds of there were a lot ways of to to keep whiteness on top of the scale, yeah. basically, um, because the scale is rigged. It is. We've kind of digressed a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, we were talking about examples of microaggressions. Yeah. Um, and you did provide Well, examples. we've talked about some of them through the lens of exoticizing. That's true. We did. But we could try to say more, or do you want to move on? I'm I'm kind of interested in, like, parsing out what we can do about it. Like, do you want to talk more about the process of, like, unlearning a lot of that, um, a lot of white supremacy? Like, how does unlearning white supremacy go? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's an easy one. <laughs> Just kidding. Huh. Um... So I think we've actually said this in the episode, but I'll say it more explicitly. The way to undo this is to unpack your own anti-blackness or your own internalized white supremacy. Yeah. Um, Like that's how you get through it because you won't notice if you don't try. Right. You have to make the actual effort. And it's fine if you have like thoughts that like pierce right through you that are highly racist like it doesn't make you a bad person to have been brought up in this society where we all got the same programming like yeah, it's what you do with it it's what you do with it that matters absolutely yeah if you've been given even a glimmer of of an opportunity to see what we're talking about then then you don't get to be like ignorant anymore yeah. Up until that point, what you just said, I think, is is like a thousand percent true. Like, it's right. okay. You don't know what you don't know. Right. Now you know. Now you know. Take a look at these things. You get a certain amount of time to be shitty at pronouns, let's say. Sure. But then, after a while, you can't. Like, you, yeah. gotta, you gotta actually do better. Right. <laughs> yeah, you, there's, there's a difference between, like, having patience, compassion, and kindness for yourself and not taking action. And, like, it's becoming more and more common for people to, like, say the right words mm-hmm. and, like, you know, hand-wavy kind of say, yeah, 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 I, I do all this stuff. But then in practice to just never learn. Yeah. And that is endlessly frustrating. Yeah, I mean, and if you're if the makeup of the people around you never changes, that can also be a clue. Like, if you are calling yourself an activist or a social justice warrior that's here to uplift black people and you really you don't have any black friends 
ongoing. Like that, you start where you start. I don't have a lot of black friends that has changed and I hope it keeps changing. Like it's a process. Yeah. But, um, yeah, just like take a look at everything. Yeah. And that includes the people that are around you. And this isn't just applying to white folks. Like if you're a person of color out there, like it's worth taking a look at some of these things because a lot of white folks are going to get somewhat of a free pass on personal internal consequences. If they're hating on people that don't look like them saying like, yeah, like people from this demographic or of this skin color are just like fundamentally terrible people. Mm -hmm. And then they immediately go, oh, I don't really believe that, do I? Um, that doesn't necessarily have to have a personal consequence for them. But if you are the demographic that you're actively hating, that's going to land for you in a really harmful, damaging way for a lot of folks. It certainly did for me. Anti-blackness. And And anti-brownness. and Internalized. Just like... It's bad. It's really bad. And you got... Yeah. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways we've talked about it through the lens of anti-blackness because when we think about the parts of the world in which social justice are on everyone's minds, it seems like a lot of that stuff comes out of universities in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And because um, anti-Blackness and anti-Indigenous sentiment is so significant in the U.S. and Canada, I think that's why we tend to see things through the lens of, like, where it's been best developed. But, like, there's just as much anti-Brownness with Indians. There's just as much... I mean, I don't even know if it's like well, you as can a black say person, I know this, right? Because like that's actually part of growing up black is understanding race so well that you recognize internalized racism in people outside of your own background, right? right. Sure, because they show you, not because you're investigating. Like you literally just yeah. have experiences where people will say and do things, and you're like, oh, right, okay, this is how you really feel about dark skin, right? This is how you really feel about large bodies which like fat phobia has has some links to anti-blackness as well interesting i would believe that yeah Yeah. i can see that um the the hot and tot fucking person she has a name and she's she's like a really famous slave uh that was paraded around oh jesus um in the last century that's scary and her body was like kept for science you know kind of things but she she had very large buttocks and was a bigger woman and so like there is there are lots of ways that you can trace and follow fat phobia that connect with anti-blackness it's not it's like it's not always an indicator but they're often overlapping and influencing one another interesting because when i think of the 50s with like marilyn monroe i don't think of blackness when i think of larger women i think of whiteness well, she wasn't really that large. That's that was true. like actually a, a, a that's like a marketing thing right. that we see Marilyn as large. I've been staring at a lot of pictures of her on Instagram recently <laughs> for whatever reason. The sure. algorithms have done that, and uh, they know you. Too she well. she definitely was like what we call chubby. Sure. At certain points in her career, but mostly it was the way that they were styling her. They wanted right. her to look very curvy, Buxom. and now we see that as child-bearing hips, etc. Or fat and, or chubby or whatever. Right. Like, And now we would describe someone like Marilyn as being quote-unquote larger. When, when she's not, she was never that large to begin with. Right. She's just not skinny. That's exactly, yes, <laughs> I, that's exactly how I feel. Yeah, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Marilyn was just not, and even, and even possibly was skinny for parts of her career. Just She was actually, for yeah. For parts of her career, she was also towards not skinny. The end. Get closer towards her death, she actually got pretty thin, which is sad. Interesting. Depression, pill popping. Yeah. Who knows, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Dark. Well, we have a few minutes to wrap up here. Um, what would you suggest to white organizers who want to improve the situation and in, and discourage anti-blackness and racism in their spaces? The first thing they can do is give up space and power. So that can start with, like, once a month our space is going to be for people of color only. Oh, I'm so happy because um, MBK is starting to do that already. Cool. And we've been doing that with Queer Swarm um, and other queer parties like Swallow Your Pride, which you came to with me, so which was good. an awesome party. It was really good. 
Yeah, they're they're already. I'm really glad to hear that. I'm partly asking this as a selfish question because I'm I'm I feel like I'm doing all the things I know how to do in the space I'm in. So I'm super genuinely personally invested in the answer sure. of like what can organizers do to continue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's like for a hot second I was doing like social equity work and organizing, and <laughs> it fell apart because the white person I was working with was unable to hear my critique about how racism had manifested in something they had produced. Right. Co-produced, I should say. Right. They, they did it with other people. Um, so, like, white... Yeah, you have to have a thick skin to be an organizer to begin with. And, like, when it comes to trying to have a, quote-unquote, inclusive or diverse space or an anti-racist space, you need a much thicker skin. Mm-hmm. And I would say, like, white organizers should get some clarity about inclusivity versus anti, anti-black yeah because they're not synonymous like right. being diverse being inclusive is still framing it from the oppressor's needs right it's about of, letting people in we don't want to appear in. as blank right and also we're choosing to you know generously give our space to other folks in the city that just don't use it because they don't think it's safe yeah so and i don't think that's necessarily an intention of a lot of white folks using that word um but like I can understand how it might have that impact and how talking about it in terms of racism would be a lot easier, a lot more inclusive, if you will. Yeah. Um, the other thing besides like having a, a caucus space, mm-hmm. you know, that is donated, like don't make them pay for it. Like mm-hmm. really don't. And if you can donate towards refreshments and whatnot, do that too. Also really deeply consider investing in having a point person that, that will help you when a racialized thing happens. Like an anti-oppression coach or mm-hmm. consultant, someone mm-hmm. who you pay to do that work. Who is not white. Yes. Like have that, like cultivate a relationship or have a person on retainer. There's that... Cicely Blaine Consulting in Vancouver. Also, I do this shit. I just don't charge money for it yet, but I will. You really I will. should. I really should charge money to do anti-oppression shit. I just want to see the change more than I need to eat, apparently. Well, let's talk about that. I want to be yeah. paid to I yell at be people paid. about being racist and huh. help them figure out how not to be racist. That's great. And it's a useful skill, too, because sometimes people genuinely are like, I don't see how what I'm saying is racist. Like, they genuinely don't get it. Um, I have been paid before to do anti-oppression work. I just don't get paid to do it often. Same, actually. And then when I find myself in situations where I'm organizing and something racist happens, I'm like, here are three hours of my time explaining why I'm furious about this thing. And I'm like, why am I not getting paid for this? Yeah. Like, there's literally no one else doing this work that I see. Yeah. Um, Like, certainly not for free. And there's a good fucking reason for that. And it's because it's not emotionally sustainable. So I should charge more for my shit. Yep. Those are two answers to that question. (laughs) Thank you. There could be more, I suppose, but... Yeah. How would you go about challenging behavior that feels unsafe on a community level? Uh, well, I will be making a podcast. (laughs) What's it going to be called? Do you know yet? Oh, you have to check the namespace, don't you? I do have to check the namespace, but I do have a name. Okay. What are you thinking about it possibly being? Bad sex educator. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, but... uh, We'll have to be on the lookout for that. When you come out with it, let me know, and I'll put it on the show notes for all of our podcasts together. Okay. Yeah. Um, What else? Cool. What can you do to challenge behavior that feels unsafe in a community level? Because as a person of color going into a white space, you don't know whether someone's genuinely made a mistake and hasn't intended any harm, or if that person's literally a white supremacist that might harm you. Mm -hmm. You actually don't know that. And it could be either way. And that, like, ambiguity is dangerous as fuck. It's sort of like the whole argument of, like, oh, should women be really concerned about walking on the same side of the street at night as, like, a man? You Mm -hmm. know, like, do they really need to cross the street? And it's like, I don't know. I mean, if you thought there was, like, a a 1% chance you might be sexually assaulted or or physically attacked or murdered, Mm -hmm. would you want to take the 1% chance every time? Or maybe it's a 0.1% chance? Or maybe you would just feel a lot more emotionally safe not going anywhere near that avoiding streets that are poorly lit, avoiding, like, doing all of this emotional labor around how to keep yourself safe. And, like, it's not a one-to-one comparison by any stretch, but there's a lot of emotional labor that people of color do. But the framing that you just did of, like, all the work that the person being harmed or, or targeted... Puts into. Yeah, versus the spaces, like, like the open space or right. a private event. 
So what else, what else can people do to like make it safe? Yeah. Cause like we, you just don't know as a person of color a lot of time and you're going to choose the safer option because that's the smart choice. If you don't have any co-organizers that are people of color, then you need to fix that. And like, I would even say hire that consultant in the interim to help you figure that out because you don't want to go about it in a way that's just reinforcing all the bullshit that we were talking about. Like, you don't want to be like, Ooh, can I find a such and such? Can I find a femme? Can I find, you know, whatever it is. Um, you don't want to be doing that because then you're basically just exoticizing the person to have them assuage your insecurities around your space sucking for brown people Mm -hmm. so i guess the short answer is find any brown person pay someone if you can't find actual community Mm -hmm. and then just keep doing the work Mm -hmm. yep keep doing the work that makes sense i was going to suggest things like um posters and all that jazz like putting up anti-racist posters trying to do educational seminars paying as a community someone non-white to host um or paying someone non-white to teach an anti-oppression seminar. That's something MBK did as well. Yeah. So, like, we're trying to posters check all the boxes. Nice. We haven't done posters yet, but I really want to do posters. And I think if I designed them myself, there would be support for it. But that touches back on this idea that, like, if POCs don't do the work, a lot of white folks will get told, you know, they're speaking for someone else. And there's this really weird catch-22 where it's like, if they're not an organization that's willing to pay for it, it just won't get done. Right. And there'll be other priorities, right? Yeah. And I mean, I would say like a next level thing is to share out what places do that. Because if a place is unwilling to make changes Mm -hmm. and it's hiding behind money as the reason, then like they may not be worthy of the brown people that would be patronizing. Right. Like they may not be. Yeah. Like, ultimately, yeah, they're not safe enough. They're not willing to change anything to attempt or approach safety. So then they don't get they don't get us. Right. We don't don't get get our shining presence. We won't promote the space as being a safe space for people of color. Yeah. And in fact, depending on how egregious it is, it might might do the opposite, might share out intracommunally. This place is not safe for y'all. Just so you know, don't waste your money. Right. Which when I started Colorful Kingsters of Vancouver, a name which I'm starting to deeply regret. Um, but it seemed like a good name at the time. And then I started doing a lot more work and I'm like, I need to change the name. Um, but that's its own thing. The cards have been made. Um, <laughs> no, I will make new business cards. That is not an excuse. See? Yeah, exactly. It, it's not. Other it's, people would sit on that. They'd be like, oh, but we already did all the promo. Oh, but we already paid right, the web developer like just, and this is what's on. The, no, right, just fucking like change it. That's right. It's not a difficult fix. It's not a difficult fix. Um, yeah, even if it were just like Kingsters of Color Vancouver, if it was KCV, it's not not a big shift and it's a lot less trivializing because when I looked at the name initially, it didn't seem trivializing. It seemed like, haha, we're poking fun at this thing that's really egregious. But then the more I started seeing that behavior in the community, the more I was like, I can't poke fun at this in good conscience anymore. Yeah. Yup. Marketing so can often challenge social justice yep. <laughs> endeavors. Definitely. As can money. And we just have to keep demanding better. That would be the take home, I would say, is keep demanding better from your communities. Keep pointing it out. And if you feel like communities are responding really bad to call outs, then like you're welcome to try calling folks in as well, specific individuals that you think might be allies. The I think personally the best strategy I've found is calling in individual white folks that have some power about an organization or community until you have white allies. And then once you have white allies, then doing more of a like... I'm bringing this before the whole organization. Here's a solution to this problem. Mm-hmm. And then the organization's usually going to want to lean in favor of your proposal, depending on how reasonable they see it to be. But if you've recruited the white allies in advance and you come to folks with a solution, you've done a shit ton of emotional labor. Yeah. But like, if and you, it's still a white centric endeavor. Definitely. Through and through. It's super problematic. It's because appeasing it is. to whiteness. Absolutely. To, you know, which is sometimes a necessary strategy. It's just I mean, not it's, the strategy, in my opinion. I agree. Um, and so when I'm saying this is a strategy I've found to work, I'm not saying it's not problematic yeah, as fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying this problematic strategy is one I have found to work for me. But thank you so much for pointing that out, because mm. like I didn't put all of that framing around it. 
yeah i mean ultimately it's like the horse that i stand on or whatever that fucking thing is like this is white centric yeah because everything is right you know our our last episode discussion ended up being white centric totally just because we were parsing it out intellectually basically yeah and i mean i had a very white childhood too even though i didn't have the experiences that other white children had like a lot of the parental messaging i got was like you know, there was a lot of suppression, I think, of a lot of Indian identity going on in really weird ways and then not in other ways. Anyways, we <laughs> should wrap this up because you've got to go soon. I do. But we can talk more later. We'll do another episode now that we've kind of talked race to death. I'm really excited to talk to you about anal sex, pegging, and power exchange, which yeah. will likely all end up being different topics, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much for listening, folks. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land acknowledgement. I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemlupste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.